Amen. For the past three weeks, we've been looking at uh, some spiritual disciplines, some spiritual life habits that I think that if you get serious about them and begin to incorporate them into your daily walk with God, that you will, uh, with the blessing of God on you, that you will find yourself uh, moving forward, going deeper and higher with God than you've ever done before. Now, I know this concept of, of discipline initially sounds a bit uh, uh, unattractive and not very appealing to most of us because we've become so very undisciplined and casual even in our walks with God. We have uh, become lackadaisical and apathetic and, and not very earnest, uh, I would say, of myself and all of us. Uh, we've not been very earnest in seeking uh, after God and following hard after Him. Now, we've been considering this truth that these spiritual life habits are, are given as a means of God's grace and are essential and indispensable for our growth in Christ and for His transforming work to be done in our lives as we become more and more like Jesus. And because uh, there are many in this room who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and because we have been forgiven and we've been adopted into God's family, and because we have such tremendous potential for spiritual growth with the Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us, it seems to me that we need to take hold of these spiritual habits to become more like Jesus Christ. And we need to cooperate, as it were, with God's Spirit to make good use of the opportunities that He extends to us. Did you think about that when you got up this morning? That this day is loaded. It is drenched with opportunity to grow in your walk with God. The problem is not on God's part. The problem is on our part. Because so many of us don't walk in faith and obedience. We are walking according to sight. We're not walking according to faith. We are walking according to our own power rather than walking according to the power of the Spirit of God that is within us. And if some of us, uh, and I, I always point the finger at myself first before I point it at, at all of us as the church, but if we would get serious about seeking after the face of God, fixing our eyes on Jesus, and disentangling ourselves from the sin that so easily besets us, and run this race with perseverance, I believe that the church, this church, would be transformed by the power of God. Do you believe that? But it takes surrender on our part. It, it, it takes a, a giving up of those uh, habitual sins. It, it takes a giving up of self and pride and self-centeredness. And this morning, we're looking at one of the methods that has historically been used uh, in the Christian community, the practice of fasting to quell and to control those, those appetites, those ungodly appetites that sometimes control us rather than we controlling them. Now, it seems to me that fasting, the, the topic we're considering this morning, is one of the most underpracticed disciplines in the North American church. It seems strangely out of place, I think, in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with satisfying itself. Every day, we are bombarded with messages all around us. 
in advertisements, in the media, in what we read every day, we hear voices telling us that life's greatest pleasures are found in fulfilling our own appetites, including our appetite for food. That we should not, as free, uh, independent Americans, that we should not deny ourselves anything that we want. And there are all kinds of situations. I'm not just talking about food this morning. I'm talking about other appetites as well that have a way of controlling us. The sexual appetite. The appetite for entertainment and being pleased and entertained. The appetite for food, yes. We've all heard the statistics on uh, the way that obesity is affecting uh, American children and adults. Obesity now is the number one financial drain to the American health care system. It surpasses even the costs that are associated with cigarette smoking. All you need to do is take a run down Peach Street and you will see evidence of the fact that we are worshiping at the shrines of the gods of our stomachs. Name your restaurant. I've probably eaten at them all. (laughs) But this environment in which we live says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. And we're all allowing these appetites, whether it be an appetite for food or something else, in, in this environment, this whole issue of fasting gets very little attention. But that's not always been the case. Historically, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ has, has given far more attention to the discipline of fasting and its place in the Christian life. If you read many of the biographical stories of many of the great saints down through the ages, you will discover that many of these men and women fasted and found the value of fasting in their walk with God. They include men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and David Brainerd and Charles Finney and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Even more impressive than the record of church history is the biblical record. The record of those in the Bible who made it a habit of fasting is like reading a a biblical who's who of great Bible characters. They include Moses and David and Elijah and Esther and Daniel and Anna the prophetess who welcomed the baby Jesus in the temple. The Apostle Paul, the leaders of the church at Antioch when they uh, commissioned Paul and Barnabas to their missionary work. And of course, Jesus Christ, I think the, the prime example of them all. If nothing else, my friends, this list, both of history's biographical characters and those that are included in the Bible, this list should cause us even for a moment to pause and to ask ourselves, have we missed something by not engaging in this biblical practice of fasting? Now, you may be totally clueless as to what this is all about. You might be thinking just down the wrong avenue. So before you go down that avenue, I I want to clear some things up. And I want to talk about what is fasting and what is the purpose that it might have in the life of the Christian. And what does the Bible have to say about fasting? 
including the, the famous teaching of Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount that Pastor Dave read a portion of this morning. First of all, let's, let's begin with a definition. What is fasting? Fasting is the abstention for physical nourishment for the purpose of spiritual sustenance. That's the classical definition of it. Fasting in the Bible always refers to abstaining from food. Now, again, I, I want us to enlarge that a bit and realize that there are other appetites in our lives uh, that don't focus on food. There are other appetites that, that need to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. But in terms of the Bible, fasting in the Bible always refers to abstaining from food, not usually from water, but f- from food for spiritual purposes. And each one of the biblical characters that I listed a few moments ago fasted for their own unique reasons. But every one of them had fasts, uh, it had fasts in common. They all practiced this, and they all abstained from food for spiritual purposes. Now, you can abstain from food to lose weight and to be on a diet. That is not a biblical fast. You can eat grapefruit until the cows come home, or cabbage soup, or all protein, or all carbs, or however you want to approach it. You can be on Weight Watchers, or Nutri-Slim, or whatever, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about fasting. The general purpose of fasting is always, as it's mentioned in the Bible, involves communion with God, and and is usually associated or accompanied by prayer. Or worship. Richard Foster, in his great book, The Celebration of Discipline, a book that I hope that that you've attempted to read, points out that fasting must not be confused with things like hunger strikes or health dieting. A fast is for biblical fasting is connected to our relationship to God. Remember that the, the the whole motivation for these spiritual disciplines, is not to get entrenched in some kind of a legalistic approach, but rather to enhance our walk with God, to grow deeper in the things of God. That is why we call it a spiritual discipline. In some way or another, biblical fasting is always connected with our relationship to God, to our ministry, or to our service for God. For example... After Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders in three of the churches they founded, we read in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23 how they prayed and fasted and they entrusted them into the care of God uh, for those who had come to believe. Prayer and fasting. You see the accompaniment of those two things together. That fasting was accompanied by this practice of fasting. Now, you rightfully might ask this morning, is fasting a commandment? Does the Bible command that we fast? And before we look more specifically at some of the purposes and benefits of that, I want to touch on that question. Is it commanded in the Bible? And that's an understandable question, I think. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, our primary concern should be to obey God in everything. So if we are seeking to be fully obedient to God, we want to know, is this something that we should be doing? Is it a commandment? If it is a commandment, then we want to know about it. 
Now, there are people throughout history who have insisted that fasting is a commandment, that it is required of every faithful believer. In fact, what they have done is they've made it a boundary marker, if you will, between those who are spiritual and those who are not spiritual. In other words, spiritual people fast and unspiritual people don't. Let me warn you this morning. We must never, never, never operate on that basis. This becomes pharisaical. It is self-defeating. Instead of helping us form into the image of Jesus Christ, we exchange that for a legalistic approach that will only increase our selfish pride. If you do this with a motivation that's bent toward legalism, and you kind of hard and fast insist upon this in yourself and in others that spiritual people do this, you will be inclined toward a pharisaical approach, and your pride will be puffed up. I had a friend who regularly practiced fasting, but I detected in him, because he was always talking to me about his days of fast, and he always went around with kind of a a drawn look on his face when he fasted. You know, I've been fasting, Rick, for 30 days. You could see it written all over his face that he'd been fasting for 30 days. He had kind of this, this pious, proper, prudish, prunish look on his face. And it became, I think, for my dear friend, more of a, a form of legalism for him. And had lost the vitality that I think that, that the practice of fasting can bring to one's spiritual life. There is, in fact, only one commandment in the Bible that has to do with respect to fasting, and it's found in the Old Testament. You'll find it in relationship to the Day of Atonement. When a goat was sacrificed, you'll remember on the Day of Atonement that there was a goat that was chosen, a scapegoat, and all the sins of the people of Israel would be laid upon that goat's head, and the goat would be sent out into the wilderness. Uh, to demonstrate symbolically the taking away of sin on the Day of Atonement. And the goat was sacrificed to atone or to cover for the sins of the people of Israel. And during the Day of Atonement, they were to fast on that day. In fact, just recently, uh, practicing Jews just practiced or, or celebrated what is called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And it is typical on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, for Jews, even in our city, you may have read about it in in the newspaper, to fast on that day. Now, that was the Old Testament, and I want to make it very clear that that is not applicable to us. Because we no longer have to observe the Day of Atonement once a year. Hallelujah. We don't need it anymore. Why? Because our sins have been atoned for once and for all, fully and completely by whom? Jesus Christ. When He was nailed to the rugged tree 2,000 years ago, the wrath of our sin was placed on Jesus. He bore our sin and our sickness, and Jesus atoned for our sins once and for all, and we recognize that when we celebrate communion once a month here, and we should recognize it on a daily basis in our life. That it is by God's grace that we are saved 
Not through works, lest anyone should boast, but it is a gift of God that is accepted through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Just nod your head to show me that you're awake. Okay. So there's a commandment to fast in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, there's no commandment to fast. In the New Testament, you find Jesus addressing the issue of fasting only twice. The first time he addresses it is in the portion of God's Word that we read this morning uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, when you fast, you must not draw attention to yourself by making a big public display out of it. In Jesus' day, the Jews practiced fasting, on average, twice a week. Jews and, and the Pharisees in Jesus' day would fast on Mondays and on Thursdays which happened to be, interestingly, Mondays and Thursdays in Jewish society were market days. They were the days when you went to the market to buy your foodstuffs and to do commerce. Now, what is the linkage, do you suppose, that the Pharisees had instructed that you should fast on Mondays and Thursdays on market days? Because it allowed them to go out puffed up with spiritual pride to go out into the marketplace and to, to say, look at what a spiritual person I am. I'm fasting today. And instead of their normal routine of putting brill cream in their hair and washing their face and putting a little dab of Old Spice behind their ears, the Pharisees would go with their hair disheveled and kind of uh, messed up, and it was obvious that something was up. Again, spiritual pride was controlling them. They wanted everyone to know that they were fasting. They wanted everyone to be impressed by their great spiritual manners. And Jesus said, if that is your approach to fasting, it is all wasted effort. He said, if you do this for display, if you, if you, you, you go out there for the acclaim of men, it is worth nothing. But Jesus says, when you fast, do it secretly unto God. And your Father who sees those things that are done in secret will reward you. Jesus' main point in raising the question of fasting in the Sermon on the Mount is obviously the address uh, to address the question of the inner motivation of those who fast. And Jesus says, when it is done, this fasting should be done unto the Lord, unto God, and not unto men, not to impress others. And there's nothing, let me make it very clear, there is absolutely nothing suggested in Jesus' words that would suggest that he was commanding his listeners to fast. And I want to be clear about that. But we, almost, we also need to admit that Jesus uh, acknowledged the practice of fasting and he did not discourage it. He says, when you fast, here is how you should do it. What's interesting to me is that in the, the course of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about three things. He says, when you give, this is how you should give. And when you pray, this is how you should pray. And then here in verses 16 through 18 in Matthew chapter 6, he says, and when you fast, this is how you should do it. It seems to me that this is further evidence 
that the context of the words around these instructions on fasting in Matthew chapter 6 uh, tells us that, that fasting is one of those disciplines that we can use in various times and seasons of our life accompanied by prayer to control our fleshly appetites. Now, the other place in the New Testament that fasting is dealt with is in in Matthew chapter 9 and 14, where Jesus was asked by the disciples of John the Baptist, why do we and the Pharisees fast so often, but your disciples don't fast? John the Baptist's disciples were saying, we fast all the time, but it seems to me that your disciples do not fast. Jesus answered them with a very unique answer. He said, how can my disciples fast while I, the bridegroom, am with them? No one fasts at a wedding. It's a time of celebration. But then Jesus added these words in Matthew 9 and 15. He said, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, you can search all through the New Testament, and those are the two major places that Jesus addresses fasting. First, in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, do it in secret, so that your Father who sees what is done in secret may reward you. And the second, in addressing John the Baptist's disciples, where he says, Why would you fast when the bridegroom is with you? It was interesting the other day I had lunch with a number of the area pastors, a a wonderful fellowship that we share lunch and encourage and pray for one another. And we were talking about uh, an effort, an initiative in early January of 2009 where we're going to be encouraging our local bodies to participate in a Daniel fast for 21 days. A Daniel fast is just solely uh, eating vegetables, fruit, and water and uh, eliminating all others. And we were talking about this and the details of it and who was going to participate in all. And my good friend Jim McCormick, who is the pastor at Church of the Cross, said, well, we Presbyterians, unlike you all, we don't have to fast because the bridegroom is with us. Of course, Jim was kidding around and kind of turning the screws of it on the rest of us brothers. But while we have the Spirit with us, the bridegroom has not yet come for his bride, the church. And it seems appropriate to me that as has been done throughout history, And through some of the great historical characters in the Christian life, it seems appropriate to me, though the Bible does not command a fast, that fasting at times is an appropriate spiritual discipline in which to engage. The best thing I can say about the question is this. While there's no direct command for Christians to fast, and while there certainly should not be a demand of it from any one of us, it seems to me that there is sufficient evidence to suggest that Jesus supports the principle that children of the kingdom would fast even as he himself did. What's the purpose of fasting? Why fast? What's the benefit in it? Several things come to mind. First of all, I believe that a fast is one means by which we may glorify God. We've already seen that Jesus' teaching that fasting must always 
center on God. If it's about self, it's about spiritual pride. It is totally useless and wasted effort. That when we fast to impress others, forget it. Go to, go, go to the golden arches and order the Big Mac, Mac meal and biggie-size it. If you're doing it to impress others, Based on this teaching, we can surely state that the most important purpose of fasting is this, that we fast in order to bring glory to God. Now, that should not be foreign to us because all of our life should be done to bring glory to God, right? Whether we work, whatever we do should be done for the glory of God. The Great Westminster Confession says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So even in participating in this practice, the biblical practice of fasting, we should do it for the glory of God. The only appropriate fast is one that is undertaken with a desire to add to God's glory. An attitude of worship and prayer, and obedience. If we fast regularly, but we don't care for the hungry, we don't love the poor and the oppressed, that kind of fasting is displeasing in God's eyes. Secondly, why do we fast? As an aid to prayer. I think I've already mentioned that fasting is always associated with prayer. It always in the Bible is associated with prayer. Listen to the words of Ezra. When the people of Israel were released from captivity in Babylon and they fasted and prayed for their protection on their journey home. Listen to Ezra's words. Verse 21 in Ezra chapter 8. There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake, who forsake him. Verse 23. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and look at what happened. And God answered our prayer. You see there the linkage between Fasting and prayer. If we put first things first and we fast in order to glorify God, then fasting can add an intensity and an urgency to our prayers in a way that often moves the hands and the heart of God. Now, please, before you jump too far, don't see fasting as a a mechanical way of getting what you want from God. It would be way too easy to come away from this message this morning and, and think to yourself, well, this is what I need from God, so I'm going to, I'm going to go on a seven-day fast, and I'm not going to eat anything, and I'm not going to drink anything, and just pray your little old heart out and think that, well, God's going to be impressed. God's not impressed. God doesn't need your fasting. It needs to be something that centers on God, something that glorifies God, and needs to be accompanied by prayer. If we are to think of this, we are right to to, to remember that prayer and fasting go hand in hand. And we must be fully surrendered when we fast to God in times of seeking His guidance or His blessing on our life. 
So fasting is a way to glorify God. It's an aid to prayer. Third, fasting reveals the things that control us. I think this is one of the most powerful aspects of fasting because it reveals to us the things that really have control of our heart and our will. There are certain benefits to those who adopt fasting as an ongoing, regular discipline, whether it be fasting once a month or or what have you. It is the unanimous testimony of those who have made this a practice in their life that fasting reveals a lot about ourselves. It tells you what really is controlling you. Fasting reveals the things that have power over you. I think personally, and I'm speaking more of myself right now, I've become a bit convicted, and my wife has been the spokesman of the Holy Spirit to remind me of this. I've been a bit convicted in the last few weeks about the attention and the control that the news media about the upcoming election has over my life. And I'm thinking maybe I need to take a fast from Fox News and CNN and all the rest. Really, I'm serious. I've gotten to the point where at night, and and Kathy said to, to me about a week ago, she said, can we watch anything but politics in this house? And her words were convicting to me. I want to be informed. I want to be knowledgeable as I step into the voting booth on on November the 4th. But there are things that control us. For many of us, it's food. For some of us, it's television. For some of us, it's the computer. It's controlling. We have to check our email every minute. We have to be writing on somebody's wall on Facebook. I bet you young people didn't know I even knew about that, did you? (laughs) Sometimes we need to die to unhealthy habits. And instead of dying to those unhealthy habits, we give more power to them by making place for them in our lives. And sometimes we have such power that we hide these things from ourselves and we will not even speak truth to ourselves about them. Fourth, fasting confirms our dependence upon God. It not only tells you what has control over you, but it also is a way of saying, God, with all of this stuff, I'm depending on you. Fifth, fasting teaches us self-denial. Fasting teaches us how to suffer happily. Uh, Dallas Willard, in his book on the spirit of the discipline, says this, People who are well used to fasting as a systematic discipline will have a clear and constant sense of their resources in God, and that will help them endure deprivations of all kinds, even to the point of coping with them easily and cheerfully. Fasting teaches self-control, one of the fruit of the Spirit, might I add, Fasting teaches self-control and therefore teaches moderation and restraint with regard to all of our fundamental drives. Now listen to me, friends, and I need to wrap up. Can we not all agree that many of our fundamental drives have gotten out of control? Our need to spend, our need to eat, our need for entertainment, our need to do this, our need to go there, Fasting is like exercising our spiritual muscles. And some of us have gotten very flabby in the area of the spirit. 
Fasting is a great tool to teach us self-control. And for that reason alone, it might be worthy of our consideration. Just before we close, though, I, I want to say just a couple of words about the actual practice of fasting. And there, let me say, in researching for this message today, there are very few resources that have been written on fasting, which I think is another sign of how this particular discipline has fallen on hard times. First of all, let me say, the Bible lays down no rule about fasting and how often we should fast. Some people fast once a week, some do it monthly, while others might fast in a specific call of God on their life. We should let nothing or no one legislate us in this matter. Hear me. Don't let anyone come to you and say, you should be fasting once a week. When they do that, it's bordering on legalism. And you want to push yourself away from that. I would simply suggest that you take up the frequency of this or participating in this, this discipline, be, make it between you and God. Now, of course, there are some of us who should not fast at all. Those with certain medical conditions, a diabetic situation, nursing and pregnant mothers should not do this. And as in all things, I, I, it shouldn't have to be said, but as in all things, common sense should be used. Common sense, folks. Common sense. If you've never fasted before, it's wise to begin slowly. Just like you would in an exercise regimen, don't go out there and run a four-minute mile. You can't do it anyways. <laughs> but start slowly, and maybe you fast one meal a month. Let your body get used to that kind of deprivation. And remember, you don't miss the meal and turn on the tube. You miss the meal so you can pray. So you don't have to worry about the preparation and the eating and the cleanup. There's at least an hour that you could devote to prayer. But don't let anyone legislate that to you. You make this an issue between you and God, and by all means use common sense. And start slow. It's best if you start with one or two meals a day, and then after some practice, you can move to a full day fast. And after a good deal of practice, you can extend that time, and you'll be much better prepared for it. In addition, it seems to me, this is very practical. You might just totally erase this thought. But it's always good, I think, to drink plenty of fluids when you're fasting, because you don't want to become dehydrated. Uh, although our bodies can go uh, 40 days or more without food, we can only live a few days without water. And therefore, you should never fast from food and water. I don't want to put you into the hospital because of your engagement with this practice. It's time to conclude, and the challenge that we're left with this morning is simply this, is to consider incorporating this life habit into our Christian experience. And I believe that with practice, it will help us to center on God and glorify Him. It will enrich and enhance our prayer lives. It will reveal the things that control us. It will assist us in living out a full dependence upon God. 
and it will help us to learn to suffer. And it is, I think, one of the means by which God's grace is implemented in our life and we can work out our salvation for the glory of God. So in all of these disciplines that Ben and I are presenting to you, solitude and silence, prayer, celebration, fasting, and I've forgotten the... Thank you. Sabbath keeping. Those are the five. I commend to you some further study and consideration of this and would suggest to you that you might try it as an aid to prayer and a way to glorify God. Let's pray together. We are so undisciplined, Lord. We are constantly giving in to our fleshly appetites. We are constantly saying yes to the invitations of the voices that are all around us to say yes when in some cases we know we should be saying no. I want to, Lord, live my life in dependence on you. I want nothing to have control over me except your Son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that through this discipline and the others that we're considering together, that you would use this, Lord, to help us to understand that this is one of the means, the gracious means that you extend to us to grow in our walk with you. Help us, O God, to live our life for the glory of God. And I pray as we go out of this room this morning that that will be our intent and objective, to live this day and this week for your glory. And that next week when we gather in this room, that we will have moved farther along the road of discipleship, that we'll go to higher heights and deeper depths in the things of the Spirit, and that you will teach us, O God, to be true disciples who love you with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength. And now, O God, I pray that your blessing, the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would rest upon us this day and every day. Dismiss us with your peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.